How can we make insurance fair and ethical with AI? This is Benevolent Bots, discussions on a safer, smarter future, brought to you by Lemonade. Welcome to Benevolent Bots, brought to you by Lemonade. I'm Tulsi. I am an ethics advisor for Lemonade. And with me is Daniel Schreiber, Lemonade CEO. Today, we're exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance. On today's episode, we're asking the first and foremost question when thinking about AI. When should we use it? What are the ethical implications? Joining us for the conversation is AI research scientist Meg Mitchell. She's been researching ethics in AI for roughly a decade and focuses on algorithmic bias and fairness in machine learning. Meg also happens to be one of my past coworkers and a good friend. I really admire her work in this space and I'm super excited to chat with her today. Welcome, Meg. Thanks so much for joining us. Before we actually jump into the discussion around AI and insurance, I thought it might be helpful just to get your thoughts more broadly on the overview here. We're talking about AI ethics in the context of insurance, and those are that's a very broad phrase. So I'd love to just even start with, how do you think about AI ethics? If you're talking to someone who maybe isn't as familiar with what that phrase means or what the field is, can you share a little bit more about what that means to you and what you've done in terms of work in the field? So I think a common misconception is that AI can be ethical. Computer science can have ethical as a goal where when we're talking about ethics and ethical AI, we're talking about approaching things through the lens of human values and thinking through different kinds of perspectives. And so I think it's important to realize that ethics doesn't give you an answer. You can't say this is an ethical thing, but you can say like, I will look at this through a bunch of different lenses and think about it from the perspective of, you know, virtue ethics, which is something like what will help people the most, you know, or consequentialism, these sorts of different ethical frameworks that can help you prioritize amongst different kinds of values. That means that you have to have some set of values that you're working with. And I think that's where a lot of the work of ethical AI really comes in where you're trying to figure out what are the values of the company I'm working for? What are the values that I as a person can sort of bring to the table? And how do those interact to inform what we do next? And how do you define those values? I'm curious as you think about, or if we're any company, right? So if we're thinking about Lemonade in this context or any other organization, do you have thoughts around how they should go about defining these values? It's a really good question, and it speaks to a larger question that's generally asked, which is sort of like, whose values, whose ethics, right? Like, people are always curious who gets to define it. And I think your question is really pointing to the fact that there are different kinds of values. You can have different sets of values. And so it's not necessarily the case that we need to have one set of values that correspond to every company, but rather different sets of values can be kinds of like business differentiators. So my business has these values and your business has those values and we might prioritize them differently. And that's just part of what makes us different businesses. My approach from the standpoint of creating a company, so I've recently joined a startup where we were sort of at the ground zero trying to figure out what is going to be our value set. And 
what we ended up doing was just going through all of the documents that had already been written as part of starting up the organization and essentially sort of categorizing the common themes that we saw in terms of different sorts of human values. So things like inclusion and diversity came up a lot. And so we were able to separate those out as kinds of values. Things like collaboration came up. It's an open source community, so there's a lot about transparency and then things about needing to document and having the originator of the code or the document be findable, and that means accountability. So we essentially said, okay, we're at you know this ground level of trying to understand what this company's values are. What we're going to do is we're going to say, we don't come to the table with no values. Actually, we all have these different things that come into play. So we're going to take these things that are implicitly informing our decisions and make them explicit. And once we had an explicit set of values that we realized just were what was sort of not being said, but understood by the founders and by some of the first people who joined, that gave us the start of a framework to start building out how these different values can interplay, what things were missing, what things need to be sort of further fleshed out, all of that kind of thing. So it really comes down to who the people in the organization are. And that stems like first and foremost from from the founders. I love that. And I know Lemonade prides itself on being a value-driven company. So I'm curious, Daniel, how this reconciles with how you think about Lemonade and and the way that you think about AI ethics in the context of, of Lemonade as a company. Yeah, I agree with with everything that Meg said. And ultimately, values are things that we value. <laughs> they need to be things that we genuinely care about, rather than just things that we plaster on the wall or put in HR documents, which too often seems to be the case. And the reason I'm I'm thrilled to be discussing the AI ethics piece within that context is because it's actually pretty core to not only what Lemonade does, but I think to the insurance industry as a whole. And it's funny because if you play the word association game with insurance, AI doesn't make the top 10, (laughs) probably not the top 100 words that you associate with insurance. But actually, as we came into this space, we realized that it really ought to. And very early on, we defined Lemonade or described Lemonade as a company that is built upon AI and behavioral economics. So kind of we had a social impact piece to our business. We are a B Corp and we've got give back as built into our business model. But AI was one of the two pillars of the business. On deeper thought, it's less strange than it might sound. It's kind of jarring at first, but really statistics and using data in order to make predictions is the very core of insurance. I'd even say that probability theory and insurance co-evolved. You go back to the 17th century to Jacob Bernoulli and the law of large numbers and to Pascal and Fermat and their formulation of probability theory. And that is the time and that is the place where the modern insurance company was born. Lloyd's of London and not that long afterwards, Benjamin Franklin. And both of those companies are still around and doing much the same thing. And it's actually a fairly recent phenomena that we no longer think of statistics and insurance as joined at the hip. Up until 10, 20, 30 years ago, if you, for the last 300 years, you stopped someone in the street and asked them, who is the bastion of the world's data and who is home to its best statisticians that have said insurance companies. And really the emergence of Silicon Valley, of Google, of Facebook, of all of those kinds of businesses suddenly eclipsed insurance companies who just weren't armed with those tools of the trade, weren't built with the 21st century technologies in mind. But the reason I say that it is so core to insurance is the actual product in insurance is probability theory. When you strip away everything else, 
take out the agents and the TV commercials and the geckos, what you're left with is a probability theory. Insurance is the business of predicting outcomes. And we'll delve into this perhaps a bit more in the, in the coming minutes, but that raises tremendous ethical challenges. If you're using by definition, in fact, the legal definition of what insurance companies are meant to do is use historical data in order to generate an expected loss and to charge like risks, like amounts. So we are at the epicenter of the question of how to use data and AI in order to do the right ethical thing by our customers. And I think the thing that's kind of interesting there, tying that notion back to the conversation of values is like, I think, Meg, it was it was helpful to hear you talk about, you know, inclusion and diversity or transparency or accountability. But I feel like the challenge in my mind is actually like what how do those actually turn out in practice? So you can talk about, for example, wanting to maximize user benefit. But in the context of now talking about insurance in the way that Daniel framed it, how do you actually make that determination of what that actually should mean? Right. So what does maximum value to the user actually mean in the context of insurance? How do we get those values one level deeper? Yeah, it's a really hard question. And especially in insurance, I feel like in the sort of AI space, we don't have a lot of regulation yet or rules yet of what we can and can't do. So it's a little bit more straightforward to be like, we want this system to work for everyone. So let's, or we want the system to work for all genders. So let's get everyone's genders and make it work for that. But I think the insurance industry like can't do that at all. So it becomes a lot trickier and you have to start thinking about proxies and things like this. So going to operationalizing these kinds of values, it means for your specific product, what are the different ways that this can come forth? What are the different ways that this can be manifested, that these values can be manifested? And so if you're looking at it from a standpoint of, I guess, transparency, then this would be about how the decision is made. So in the context of insurance, this would be all the factors that you're taking into account in order to come to someone's sort of risk proposal or you know whatever your estimate of, of the loss could be. And then obviously that comes up against potentials for, you know, maybe it's your proprietary formula or something like this. So you don't want to expose too much of that information. There has to be pros and cons of sharing versus the actual profit goals of your company. This is always sort of attention or something where you have to prioritize amongst the different values. But you know, you end up in a space where you can say something like, okay, well, what matters a lot is transparency. So what we're going to do is we're going to show as much as we can about our process in deciding whether or not someone should get this insurance or what the cost should be. Basically, try and figure out how you can then leverage that transparency in a way that can benefit the user and benefit the company. So sorry, I said user. It's a very like AI centric, the person, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, or the consumer. So you can say like, well, I want to have transparency and I want to have something like inclusion. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to provide as many factors as I can for the consumer to look at and allow them to come back and provide some sort of contestation about something or say like, I think this could be represented differently, or maybe there's some sort of options they can choose from. So obviously, the values will be manifested very, very differently depending on the context and the product and everything like that. But that would be essentially how you would do it. Like, what can I bring to the table with my product? What do I have the options to share, to disseminate or to not share? 
And then how can I sort of leverage that to meet the goals of what we want with a customer as well? One use case, Meg, as you're talking about this, I think that's kind of interesting that we've been talking about on in the context of insurance is fraud detection. And this is particularly interesting because in some ways you actually don't want to be as transparent to the end user or person or consumer because you actually are trying to detect whether or not that individual is honestly submitting or filing a claim for insurance or whether that claim is wrong for any reason. And so I'm curious how you think about those types of cases where like the value actually of fraud detection, these constructs make a lot of sense when you're talking about using a model that directly benefits the end user, right? So for example, when you're talking about the pricing piece, if you price a user a certain way, the user is the one who has the end outcome of that. With something like fraud detection, you're using it on a particular person but the benefit is actually to a broader set of people, right? Or, or a different set of people, if you were able to detect whether or not that person is lying. Yeah, I guess I'm curious how, how both of you think about, about that kind of use case and how these values and harm benefit trade-offs, how we should be thinking about them in that kind of context. Yeah, I mean, I just can sort of echo what you're already saying, which is that there are these trade-offs. And so, you know, if you're very concerned about fraud, which, you know, insurance companies are, then there's only so much information you can provide people to help them understand why you've come to the various decisions, because it can be gamed or used for further fraud. And so this this gets to, I think, one of the points around ethics and not being able to have like all ethics or all values. There's always one value will come at the expense of another. So it's always a matter of like trade-offs and trying to find some sort of sweet spot but you always have to have something that's somewhat in conflict being overridden by something else. There's always these kinds of priority trade-offs. So I would imagine this would be something where you would figure out what is like some minimum amount of information that we can say that will give the, some user transparency, give them some recourse for you know contestation or something like that, but also doesn't give away fundamentals that could be manipulated for fraud and trying to figure out you know specifically what that spot would be. It's a, it's a place that we've um, tried to be thoughtful and have had a lot of controversy around, actually, because, first of all, the trade-offs are, are profound. So fraud is endemic in insurance. We have tried through including charities and, and other behavioral economics and kind of alignment methodologies, having an unconflicted business model to try and, and reduce fraud. And I think we're broadly successful, but it doesn't eradicate it. It keeps the honest people honest, but the criminals are still out there. So then your question is, how do you deal with that kind of fraud. And you know that the more invasive you get, the more accurate you'll be at perhaps detecting fraud. But of course, you'll catch some innocent people in the process and the, the, or you'll put them through a, a process that they won't have appreciated going through because these methodologies are statistical models. On the other hand, if you allow fraud th through, it's not simply a commercial decision. And particularly in a business like ours, people who defraud the company are actually defrauding their fellow policyholders. And in our case, they're actually defrauding the charities as well, because we have a methodology where leftover monies at the end of the year go to charities. So we're really balancing on the one hand, the consumer and treating him or her with dignity and trying not to be intrusive in a way that doesn't make sense, but balancing that with wanting to detect and deter fraud for the benefit not only of our bottom line, but of policyholders, premiums and charities that are dependent to some extent on the give back. When we've spoken about it in the past, and one time we got it gloriously wrong, 
So a few months ago, we had a really terribly worded uh, tweet that was written by somebody who was trying to be chatty and con conversational about this, but didn't really understand the full weight of the words she was choosing to use with the brand's name. And it implied a bunch of things that turned out to have landed on much more precise ears than hers and implied that we were doing stuff like phrenology and stuff like that to detect honesty. We, we weren't. We never were. It was just a, a misworded uh, tweet. But it does raise these questions that you're talking about. What technologies make sense, have real efficacy, and from an ethics perspective are right versus those that either are ineffective or even if they are effective, we shouldn't be using them because they've got biases or other things that could hurt a subset of the people. What, what are your thoughts on that, Meg? Sorry, I was so first off, you said phrenology and my mind was immediately unpacking. I think you mean physiognomy, <laughs> but that's probably not something you want to dwell on at all. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think either of those actually it's, it's, it's worth jumping into either of those cases. Meg, I know you've written about physiognomy in the past. And so I think a, a it would just be interesting to, to hear you share some of those thoughts. But I think more broadly, the question that I'm interested in is how do you determine when you should or should not use AI, right? And I think the physiognomy one feels like an obvious example, and we can talk about that. But there's grayer areas there too, right? In terms of like, when is machine learning appropriate or inappropriate and how you actually make those determinations? So machine learning and AI are often used as sort of like the hammer for any possible nail there is instead of really sort of taking a step back and thinking more about whether a human would be much better at doing some task. I see ML and AI more broadly used more and more in contexts where it doesn't necessarily make sense, especially given the specific uses, but it's used anyway because there's this sort of sense that it's up and coming and perhaps more correct or something like that. So there's this issue called automation bias, which I know, Tulsi, you know a lot about. So it's really funny to be talking to you so much about things I know you know about, but for everyone else. There are things like automation bias, where you have a propensity to believe something that an automated system says more than you would a human, even in the light of conflicting evidence. And so I think, you know, as we get into discussions of fraud detection, as well as just sort of generally deciding who should be trusted and who should not, this isn't a space where AI models can be particularly helpful, but they can very much mislead. And this is part of the issue with the physiognomy and phrenology stuff, which I imagine you guys will maybe not want to talk about further. But the issue really comes down to how machine learning is misinterpreted and misapplied. And when you're dealing with things that have to do with subjective traits or internal traits of humans, then humans are much better equipped to come to decisions about these sorts of things and come to conclusions than AI systems are, which will just essentially propagate the same mistake over and over again in all the places it's applied. Yeah, I guess it's an interesting thing when you think about then cases like fraud detection, right? You made this point about like they may not be able to add strong confidence, but they may be able to mislead. How should we think about those types of use cases, right? Because it does seem like there are probably cases where you can actually get pretty significant signal from using models in these cases. And there's probably a, a line between physiognomy and using like emotional behavioral factors that don't make sense to using things that feel a little bit more streamlined, right? Like whether or not someone is submitting a piece of context that differs from the verbal piece of context they're providing, right? 
And there's probably a big range in between. Yeah, maybe just to build on that and, and make to pick your brains about this a little bit. And, and these aren't topics that we don't want to talk about at all. We'd love to delve in and figure out what the right thing to do in these situations is. What we were doing, and this was the, the misunderstanding, was we were doing a face kind of fingerprinting. We found that there are too many times people were making false accounts, multiple accounts, uh, and then filing claims, which was done through a video. And just looking at the face fingerprints allowed us to detect people signing on with different names, but with the same face. And that obviously raised a flag. And that was the extent of the, the use of that technology. But I do wonder, we, we don't have a digital polygraph test. But I've seen demos of phones that can detect heart rate and other things. And as the cameras get better and other technologies become more perceptive, I do wonder how you think conceptually about a polygraph test that could be administered digitally. To one of the first points, I guess, that Tulsi made, I think it's really important that a distinction is made between more objective and more subjective kinds of things and external qualities and internal qualities. And so machine learning systems are really good at objective things and things based on sort of superficial characteristics, things like this. Once it gets more to intuiting something about a person or more subjective senses of a person, then that's where humans and a variety of humans are really useful. So you want to bring in machine learning as one signal that can be used for some specific kinds of data alongside a bunch of other data that multiple people ideally would look at. To the question around sort of a polygraph approach, Daniel, it sounded like what you were describing was was face recognition or face identification or verification. There's like some differences, but they're essentially types of face recognition. And that's fraught for a lot of reasons, most of them having to do with misuse and abuse and how people can be harmed. That said, a lot of companies are picking up face recognition. I was just reading about the IRS, thinking of using it when you do your taxes. So it is definitely something that's emerging and emerging in a financial sphere. The questions around that are really come down to how it could be misused or abused or how that data is stored and how secure it is and stuff like that. To the point about polygraph type things with heart rate and all, and all like that, I think it's important to keep in mind that polygraphs already aren't perfect. I think they have a lot of false positives, either false negative. I think it's a lot of false positives. So it'll tend to say you're lying when you're not lying, as opposed to a false negative, which is where it says you're not lying when you are. So these kinds of technologies aren't perfect. And then again, you come up against things like automation bias, where you tend to think they're perfect, even if they're not. If you're taking these more biometric measurements, it's really important that people understand what it is and give their consent. I would say not only through an ethical lens, but also just through lenses of current data, data protection laws. We see this coming out in the UK and the EU and China, these ideas that if you're using someone's personal data, they have to know what it is and why you're using it and be able to say, no, you can't. And that gets to a lot of human rights and stuff as well. So there's that aspect. But also, I think it would be important to keep in mind that when you are using these kinds of signals with the consent of the user, that they aren't foolproof, that they will give you really incorrect results and, you know, are a function of a lot of things, including like how good the system 
is or their I don't know what you'd be using to get their heart rate, but you know, how fancy is their heart rate monitor? And if it's like people who are poorer have crummier ones and people who are richer have better ones, now you're creating a disparity that you kind of didn't even have on your radar because you were only paying attention to the signal you want, as opposed to how the thing that gives you that signal might be different across different customers and what that does. So I think this is like another very important aspect to keep in mind when separating all these all these factors out. That's really interesting. It, it triggers a, a follow-up question for me, which is, do technologies need to be just better than humans or do they need to be held to some other standard? You know, when a Tesla car crashes in autopilot mode, it, it makes the news, but of course, it's likely that more people would have died otherwise. You spoke about humans and their ability to intuit. We've got we've seen a lot of research about the biases that our intuition can drive, particularly when dealing with people that are, are not from our crowd or different genders or different races, etc. Do you think that you use AI once it has a result that can be more dependable, more reliable, more accurate than a human? Or is the bar that you're setting entirely different? I would say the bar is entirely different. I sort of object to the idea of better than humans. Or maybe I want to clarify that you can have a score on a system that's higher than a score that a human would create. But that doesn't mean that the system is better than humans overall. And so we see a lot of sort of benchmark data sets that are being used to show this system outperforms humans. But what that really means is on this specific evaluation data set with this specific measurement, the measurement of our system is higher than the human. But measurements already are imperfect. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding about what it even means when you have some sort of score. So I'm thinking of something like word error rate or, you know, there's, uh, I don't know how much I should get into like the metrics within AI, but at a high level, it's really not possible to say this is better than a human, full stop. You can say it performs better on this task as measured with this metric. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it'll be sort of more generally better overall. So, for example, we're talking about fraud detection. And I'm always concerned that humans who are adjudicating claims in general bring a whole lot of human baggage machines have their own challenges. But if we make a determination, I take your point about how to measure it, but if we make a determination that they are doing a more accurate job of applying the policy to the facts in hand, is that good enough? Even though they may still have inherited bias, they may still be using proxies, they may have things that we don't like, but once they exceed humans, do we switch? Yeah. So the exceed humans bit is an issue. And I think that's tripping me up. But I, I want to try and move past it so I can actually get at what you're asking, which is that humans will have the ability to take in a variety of factors in a way that systems can't. You can't usually have a system that makes a prediction and then you say, oh, but did you consider this and have the system fundamentally change its decision? And so I think that it's a space where it can be really useful to see what a system's prediction is, but then have that be combined with a bunch of different people's views on what the outcome should be, right? So if it's a single person, then arguably they will consistently mess up similarly to how a machine learning system might consistently mess up. If you have a variety of people, 
then ideally you have a few more perspectives that can counteract just sort of one mind's or one AI's way of messing up over and over again. And then further, you have the ability to look at independent and unique situations in a way that systems can't. So in the 70s, there was work on trying to do sort of uh, legal decisions via math and statistical models. And it sort of became, it went out of fashion because it was found that when you're trying to come to some conclusion about some specific case, there's no way a system can model all of the variables unique to that situation because it's the first time all of those variables have been together for that unique situation and you can only learn from the past. So there does need to be a case-by-case -case human analysis from multiple humans or people, I should say, coming to a conclusion because they can bring in all of these factors unique to a situation, not based directly on past data, but based on what's happening in the here and now. You are right that an AI system or a machine learning system can consistently produce similar answers given similar variables. It's one subset of all the things at play. So it's a useful signal. It's a useful thing to leverage. But ideally, is, and especially when it comes to things like people's lives or, you know, I guess, you know, huge insurance things that they're going to be using or not. You want to have people being able to weigh in on the specific use, the specific case of the specific person in a way that that machines can't. Yeah, it, it feels like there's two two interesting things that I'm pulling out, Meg, from what you're saying. One is this idea of machine learning as a signal that is then fed to not just one but a composition of people who may be bringing like different perspectives. And I think that's also really important. I think often when we talk about like humans in the loop, we talk about like a single person now making a decision. And I think one thing that's really interesting about what you're saying is that a single person may also have a consistent set of flaws that reflect their biases in a certain way. The way you mitigate that is by bringing together a composition of people who may hopefully balance each other out in different ways that are hard to pre predict. Right. But the second thing I think that you had said a little earlier, which I think ties in here too, is this difference between subjective and objective. And so really thinking about what machine learning is good for is being able to provide those objective signals in a way that a human may not be able to because of their ability to parse these large amounts of past occurrences, right? And, and predict then again, the same similar occurrence, but then subjective being something that is inherently very human because of the fact that it is frankly subjective, right? It is not, there's not a, a single ground truth fact. It's, it's unique to the way you interpret the situation. I think it's also really interesting, actually, just I know we're, we're sort of close on time here, but I do want to come back to something you talked about a little bit earlier when we were talking about face recognition and the way that that space is fraught, I think, and the real harms that can come with misuse of that data and that technology. And I'm curious how you think about going back to values and when to use certain technologies the harm and benefit trade-offs with using these kinds of technologies, right? So going back to, again, to the fraud detection use case and the use case Daniel brought up where using face verification to essentially see if someone is submitting the same video under multiple guises, that feels like a, a, a one way to identify whether someone is repeating themselves in a way that is problematic. On the other hand, it is using a technology that we know to have been misused in a lot of ways. How do you think about those kinds of determinations if you're trying to decide whether or not to use a technology in this kind of situation? I think it would be a mistake to say that facial recognition and similar technology is always bad. I think that sort of what's been described here is something like face match, 
or face verification. And so when we're talking about some specific technology, we want to think through how it will be used. And in the case of face recognition, that you can say like, this is going to be a one-to-one match, a one-to-many match, a many-to-one match. Like how many faces are we considering and storing for any one face that we get in? In a face match sort of situation or a face verification sort of situation, it's not that you're taking one random image and comparing it to everyone in the world. You actually have a template of that specific face and are trying to match to that specific face. So this is a one-to-one matching, which is much lower risk than like a one-to-many matching, which is what you have when, you know, police are trying to identify if this suspect has been found somewhere. And then things like false positives and false negatives and the different kind of errors there are have a much higher risk because that means like false imprisonment, as opposed to something like verification, where it's a very small set of faces under consideration. They've all been consented And there isn't as massive of an issue if a mistake is made. And so something like face match, face verification, I think is relatively reasonable in a case where A, the person has consented, and B, the data is stored appropriately. Because really where we start to see risks is around that data leaking out and being misused for different things. So as long as there are appropriate privacy controls in place, appropriate deletion policies, I think something like face verification can be quite helpful. And in fact, many of us use it on our phones when we do the, f- the face unlock, right? It's the, that's the same fundamental technology. It might be possible for, say, your mom to uh, hack into your phone or in the case of something like face match around insurance, you know, you might end up with a situation where your mom can't put in an insurance request because she's matched to your face. But then again, this is where things like humans are useful to come in. And you can say, no, 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 this case is different. Actually, we're not the same person. You can see both of us. We can't tell <laughs> it's that. It's actually the- funny. I can open my mom's phone with my face. I know that. That's why I, it's wild. <laughs> that's why I brought up that example. Yeah. It's yeah. wild. The whole thing is wild. <laughs> but if you're in a situation where you guys are both applying for the same insurance and it's making that mistake, that's why you need a person. So you can be like, look, we're two different people. <laughs> like we can't tell that to the system, but we can tell that to you guys. Yeah. (laughs) It's about like, how can you actually react to the system? But I do think this was like a helpful walkthrough because I think one of the issues that I see many companies and products going through is this, is this mental walkthrough of when can I use this technology? When should I use this technology? How do I determine whether like the harms outweigh the benefits? And I think it's both an interesting case study in thinking about benefit and harm, but also thinking then about what are the guardrails you can put in place to prevent that harm, right? Whether that's like data storage compliance, whether that's consent, whether that's like human ability to to chime in and verify and contest. So there's a lot of, I think that framework is really helpful as, as I think our listeners, hopefully, or just people in general are thinking about when do we use these technologies? How do we frame them appropriately? I think you summarized all those points really well, as, as usual, as you always do, but That's exactly what we mean when we're thinking through values and then the specific technology and the specific use case, because you really have to get into those nitty gritty details to figure out the exact policies that need to be put in place and the various protocols and things. Honestly, Meg, this has been awesome. It's always a pleasure talking to you. It's always the best. So thank you for coming and for sharing and for for chatting. I think this is a really helpful starting point just for hopefully companies in general, but also I think for for Lemonade and how to think about these technologies and how to deploy them in the context of insurance. So thank you. Thank you, Meg. 
Yeah, thank you so much for having me and lovely talking to you as always and all of your brilliant thoughts. So thanks. Thank you so much to Meg for coming on the show and sharing some of the insights around how you think about machine learning, how you think about building AI into product and the values and how we build values into our products. For all of you listeners, please be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you never miss an episode. And if you learned something, leave a review and let us know what it was. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Benevolent Bots, exploring the intricate world of AI and insurance brought to you by Lemonade. Lemonade.